spent all day Thursday last week thinking it was Wednesday. I suspect I'm not alone in losing track of the days. But I am certain that today is Monday, which means it's time for a new episode of This Week in the CLE, the Cleveland.com podcast about the coronavirus. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, with fellow editors Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Despite Mike DeWine's announcement last week about reopening Ohio, is anyone feeling confident at the end of this weekend that things will change soon? No. <laughs> I mean, I I feel like I see the light at the end. I'm I'm optimistic that, you know, starting by June, it'll start to feel a little bit less restrictive. I was more optimistic Friday, but after all the stuff that I read this weekend, we're just not ready. We don't have the testing capability. And DeWine as much as said that. So, I, you know, we'll see. Anyway, let's begin. Will Ohio Governor Mike DeWine open schools before the end of this school year? The governor said Friday he would spend time over the weekend talking to superintendents and others to figure out what to do about schools as he seeks to start reopening the state in May. And as much as I think he wants to do that, to get an idea of how things might work in the fall, I'm married to a teacher. And the feeling I get is that teachers, parents, and superintendents are dead set against returning to schools before fall. State House Editor Jane Cahoon, has DeWine telegraphed anything about what he is thinking? Not so much, but we do know, as as you said, the, the teachers, in fact, a couple of teachers unions have written to DeWine telling him, please don't reopen the schools. They're worried about their staff. They're worried about the kids. So he, he's getting a lot of that. And as you said, he was going to talk to the superintendents. But basically, he has said, you know, from the beginning that he's going to let the science guide this and where we are in terms of of testing. And I don't know, you just got to believe that he's he's not going to he's not going to do it. Well, let's talk about it a bit, though. To reopen schools, you'd have to have safeguards to be sure that all those kids are not exposing each other. Laura Johnston, you have two school age kids. You spent the past five, six weeks with them. Do you think there's any way that children en masse would follow rules about distancing, hand washing and mask wearing? Absolutely not. No way. Like <laughs> my kids can't keep track of their coats and gloves. This Paul past past fall, my son actually lost his shoes at school. Um, can you imagine <laughs> how gross those masks would be? Like, can you just see this biohazard lost and found bin? I I just cannot I don't have no idea how they're gonna manage this. Well, the physics of this is tough too, right? Laura, you mentioned last week the changing of classes. That's more of a thing than high school or the, or the higher you go in school, but a bell rings and the hallways are like a Los Angeles highway. How can a school cope with that? Yeah, I talked to the superintendents of Parma and Shaker Heights last week, and there are so many situations they want guidance on. Hallways is a big one, um, but how do you handle kids eating in the cafeteria? How about in elementary school, the kids' desks all touch each other? How do you handle that? What about riding the buses where kids are two to three to a seat? I mean, there are just so many periods during the day that these kids are just crammed together. When I was growing up, the town I lived in in New Jersey had too many kids for the high school. So it broke them into two groups with one attending from very early in the morning to lunch and the second going from lunch until early evening. Yet, Is it a possible solution that you would break the kids into smaller groups and then rotate them through whether you have multiple shifts a day or some kids come two days a week and other kids come another two days? 
That's a really interesting suggestion. I haven't thought about that. You, you definitely, if you were going to go kind of two shifts in the day, you'd have to shorten the school day. The weird hours and the weird days would probably be a pain for parents. But at this point, I think they're probably going to consider all solutions. All right. So it sounds like we're predicting DeWine will not open the schools this term. But all the problems we're talking about are not going away. They still have to be solved for fall. I mean, the, the physics don't change. Nothing really changes. You know, what, what happens if, if when we get to the fall that's different than what we're dealing with now? Well, maybe by then we'll have, you know, antivirals that are effective um, or, or testing that, that allows us to pinpoint and isolate people better. It, you know, there's so much going on, so much being studied now. I think the hope is that we'll just be in a better position all around. Yeah, the scariest thing I read over the weekend is is they think that the antibodies from this thing will give you two years of protection, which means Aww. it's going to be coming back hard. Is the answer what we've been doing, just schooling the kids virtually at home? I, it's not ideal. I can tell you from my wife's experience that there's been a good bit of comedy and talking to Layla Tassi last week, and this is the first week where the parents are going to be introducing completely new topics. Laura, I imagine you have some experience with this. But is that the answer in the fall? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, you have to wonder how much they're actually learning. My kids each have this Google Classroom with assignments, online quizzes. They're supposed to write paragraphs in Google Docs and turn it in virtually. But it is really tough to keep track of. And I say this as a mom who got emails from both my kids' teachers this week about missing assignments. We have a schedule and they're supposed to be using their computers only from schoolwork, for schoolwork until about four every day. But I'm working most of the day, so I'm not policing them. And they know that there, there's a lot of YouTube going on. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's hard to learn things when you're a kid by yourself. So I don't really know how much they're they're advancing their education. This is really one of the biggest challenges of this thing, because if the kids get together and they share it, they're going to bring it home and we're all going to get sick. But education is kind of important. You can't skip it for a year and a half while you wait for a vaccine. So we'll look to DeWine this week to offer his vision. He's got a very difficult set of decisions to make. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After the coronavirus subsides, will employers keep people working from home and shut down their offices to save on rent? This is a question with enormous ramifications for American cities and real estate developers. It also has huge ramifications for the environment, for cities that want to be bike-friendly. Here's the thing. So many of us have been working from home now for five or six weeks, and we're getting it done. At Cleveland.com, we're covering the biggest story of our lifetimes, and we haven't been together since early March. So we can do it. So let's start there. Do we think employers are realizing that they might not need central locations? Laura Johnstone, let's start with you. They they might just be. I thought it was going to be tough for us since, you know, at Cleveland.com since we talk so much. But again, we've been incredibly productive. My husband's on conference calls all day. His job is getting done. And I think that's true for a lot of people. We People we interview for stories, they're home, they're getting their work done. What might be interesting to see is if people's opinions about working home from home have changed. I think people used to see it as a treat. And now people might be clamoring to please let me back in. But, it, but, but there's a huge financial incentive. I mean, if all mm -hmm. of these employers are getting the work done and they don't have to pay that huge rent, it's a big deal. Chris Wernowski, you live downtown. Real estate developers are investing hundreds of millions on the belief that they have demand for downtown workspaces. 
If even 10% of the downtown employers decided they no longer need to spend the money on rent, that could devastate the market, right? Right. And and I feel like we're when you see when you go around the city and you see all of this development, I think a lot of it is more commercial in the in the retail sense. Like I, I, I think maybe one of the things that benefits downtown Cleveland is that they're already turning office space into apartments. So so but you know, you have to think about I mean, think about Sherwin Williams. You know, they're about to build a giant headquarters downtown. Right. And and, and their employees, I assume some of them are working remotely right now and they have to be wondering if maybe scaling back those plans might be a good idea. So, so, you know, I mean, we, this is going to hasten, I think a lot of, you know, talk of automating jobs and what can we do? And, and I think we, we tend to remove. Well, wait, 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 it's not really automate. It's not automation though. I mean, law firms, accounting firms, insurance companies, a lot of those are cubicle farms that they now know people can do it from their kitchen tables. So, why have the cubicle farm? Look, with retail establishments, you got to be there, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's a, you know, barbers and things, you know, they have to have a space where you come to. But it just seems like for a lot of the people that are coming downtown every day, we've all adjusted. I mean, yeah, we hated the virtual meetings, but mm-hmm. we're doing them. So take that the downtown living thing a little bit further. Do you mm-hmm. think that this would make downtown a nicer place, not having the massive traffic in and out every day where more people might want to live in that vicinity? Or do you think that it kills retail downtown, not having the influx of people and it stops being a livable neighborhood? I think you have to look at it as, is as why people live downtown. So, you know, part of the reason that we moved to where we live is that it's pretty much equidistant between my job and my girlfriend's job. So, you know, we have the same commute, the, you know, and and we're smack dab in the middle. But if you also have us, a great view, so yeah, great, yeah, yeah. But but the nice thing is that if we work from home, why on earth would we live down here? Like we could go out to the suburbs and buy a house, probably cheaper, and have room for our dog to run and and all of this stuff. So it's like some people live in these communities, live downtown because it's close to where they work. If you remove that need, then why would people live downtown and i think yeah. that's something that is is gonna it will have kind of a domino effect and and i look i think we were heading in this direction anyway i just don't think infrastructure had caught up with it and i think cool. this has forced companies like ours and a lot of other white collar jobs to look at the bottom line and go like look maybe we should just pull the trigger on this and do it and, look i'm not and i'm not saying we won't have a newsroom i'm just saying in an industry as challenged as ours where you try and put every dime you have into keeping a reporting workforce. Mm-hmm. If you have to cut and you can cut that without cutting the content you do and, you know, maybe have meetings once a month where you get people together, you know, would you want to do that instead of cutting the pay? But, but if but, we're talking about downtown, like you have to think about all the other amenities that are not work. Like people want to walk to an Indians game or to Playhouse Square. Assuming those things go back online, <laughs> they're still going to be there. For people who who want a walkable neighborhood, and there are not that many places you can get that in Northeast Ohio. Right across the world, we've seen photos that show clear skies. A month of people not going to work really has reduced pollution. I read that you can see Mount Kenya from downtown Nairobi for the first time in decades. If you reduce the number of people who are driving to work, you you have to make for better air quality. If you want to be bike friendly, Jane Cahoon, 
the best way to do that is to get rid of the cars, right? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but the times I've been out walking and then in the few times I've been out driving, it's such a shift because there are so many people out, you know, just with the, you know, trying to get rid of the cabin fever that you really, that they've kind of taken over the, not they, but the, the cyclists and the walkers, they've kind of taken over the streets. Now. And the coyotes and the raccoons yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, but, I mean, that's fascinating, right? Because that, that's what you define as livable. So, so not having the cars and having the people out taking advantage of the, the recreation. I mean, I had to drive in, into the office Saturday to drop off a bunch of masks. And actually, I was surprised at how much traffic there was. And I think a lot of people were running errands. But I, as I drove around, I just thought, what, you know, what, what if you close down Chester? Because you don't need it anymore because people aren't commuting in. Could that become this bike lane from downtown to University Circle? The other question is, it gets back to the simple economics, right? If you're medical mutual or you're progressive or any number of the big law firms and you realize that you could either get rid of your rent or cut it enormously and still get the job done, wouldn't you? I mean, let's face it. These offices weren't built out of altruism. They did it because they needed people together to get the work done. But this could be a real watermark moment for America where where we all realize we don't need to do that. And we all get our commuting time back and we all, you know, don't really need as much of our cars. What do you think? I, I think you're right in some sense. I, I think maybe I, w- I haven't looked into this, but and maybe that number exists somewhere. But there has to be, and I'm not saying for anybody on this podcast this is the case, but there will be a drop in productivity from working from home. And so I think that there is probably some math that has to be done on on what companies might lose in that in that vein because you know you're not in a collective work environment and you know, you're not going to have supervisors and things like that minding, you know, the work that's being done and and prodding people along to to get things done. So, you know, again, not saying that's the case here, but I'm just... Oh, God, I feel like I've never worked harder in my life. (laughs) Right. I mean, this is is a different situation. You know, we are working constantly. But I mean, there that that is when you have these conversations about work from home, that is that is certainly something that that companies do take into account. And and it's look, maybe maybe this will make companies be sort of less demanding on employees and and a little more lenient about things like taking a walk in the middle of the day because you're going crazy looking at your apartment for the 24th straight hour or something like that. So, so well, and you're right. You know, I think you're right. You would need to do the study on productivity, balance that against what the cost of your rent is and figure out, do you save the money? I, because you're right. There would be in some industries a drop in productivity. Although I don't know, man, everybody can measure keystrokes and, and a lot of stuff is tax oriented. Anyway, it's a good conversation. I'm sure we'll be hearing more of this as this thing moves on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When will Ohio expand its coronavirus testing? Ohio Governor Mike DeWine went on national television Sunday and called on the federal government to get its act together and help the states expand testing. Every scientist out there is saying the only way we can try to return to normal is with wide-scale testing. Jane Cahoon, that was a little bit unlike DeWine. He's been careful not to call out the federal government. What's going on here? Well, he was on Meet the Press yesterday, and 
he did make a direct appeal to the FDA for these materials that that are in short supply to conduct the testing. And he said he could probably double or maybe even triple testing in Ohio overnight if the FDA would prioritize this and and get these materials out. So, yeah, he didn't he, he also say that Ohio has a different kind of material that the FDA should approve for use that 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 would also help. So basically, it's an, he's making another call on the FDA, which he did when he wanted the approval of Battelle's sanitization process for masks, right? Right. Uh, he did get action that way before. And in fact, after his appearance on Sunday on TV, he got a call from the FDA and he tweeted about it, that uh, he got a very positive phone call from them. So this did work out for him before with the with the Battelle mask, where he was just you know, working the phones, trying to get to the people in charge. And um, apparently they respect him. So, But then Mike Pence on another show said the states already have what they need to expand testing. And he plans to explain that this week. That makes no sense. What, what, what's he talking about? <laughs> Actually, Chris, it was on the same show. He was he was also on Meet the Press. But th- this is just another example of this, you know, I don't know what to call it, alternate reality where, you know, he was out there saying that he he thought that the states were set up to go into phase one here and that they already had the resources they needed to ramp up testing. But, but there's just no evidence of that. I mean, it's just <laughs> not true. I mean, it's amazing that you have the president and his administration just repeatedly saying things that are patently not true. I guess it plays to a base that just believes everything they say. But it, man, that just made no sense that he would do there's, that. There's supposed to be a phone call today uh, with the White House, with the governors again, where they're supposed to lay out some more details about this. So so we'll see. All right. You're listening this week in the CLE. Are prisons the reason that Marion County became number one in Ohio for coronavirus cases Sunday? Since the first COVID-19 cases were confirmed in Ohio, in Cuyahoga County, we were number one in cases. Until Sunday, we were passed by both Franklin County, where Columbus is, but and Marion, the new leader, which went up by a long shot. Chris Ranowski, it's a simple reason, right? Right. The the jail there, uh, as of Sunday afternoon, said that they have 2,400 of the state's 11,602 confirmed coronavirus cases. That's that's all Ohio prisons, but the prison there definitely is is adding to that population. They so, had eighteen hundred in one yeah. prison, and Franklin County total is fifteen thirteen, and we're total is fourteen hundred. That's a staggering number of people in in uh, one place to have it. Right, but you know, jails and nursing homes are going to be the places where where we're seeing it the most because, and part of why we're seeing this explosion is because they're actually doing testing in in the jails that's something that the governor has has ordered because they were starting to see people dying in the jails and and so it's become the most i think aggressively tested single population in the state now right they went from 983 saturday to 1834 sunday but doesn't this kind of get at the heart of all of the claims that testing is needed that i mean we know this because that entire population was tested, as you said. Mm-hmm. But most of the general population has not been tested. I, I guess the question here is, is the prison just 
have a much denser population of people that have it? Or is this a reflection of the population on the whole? If we tested everybody in Ohio, would we find massive numbers of people that had it and didn't have symptoms? I think it would be the latter. I think part of the reason that our numbers are down and, and maybe from a long view, the, the numbers that we do get every day out of the governor's office are reflective of the population. But I think if you just gave a test to everybody today and everybody took it, we would see that a lot of people who didn't think they had it had it and, and that our numbers would be significantly higher. I wonder if the health department's going to make this a case study, because if 1,800 people have it and many don't have symptoms, they could do a, a demographic breakdown on race and age and underlying conditions to really get a good feel for how this virus works in any population. You got to hope they're going to do that. It's the weekday coronavirus discussion on this week in the CLE. Are Ohio police writing fewer traffic tickets during the coronavirus crisis? We wondered about that last week because everybody's home and police worry about getting sick if they're writing fewer tickets. The answer was more stunning than we thought, Chris Wernowski. So, yeah, we, we actually found out that the state highway patrol has seen a decrease of, of traffic tickets of about 92% compared to the uh, same period last year. So what Adam Freese did was is he took all of the ticket data from 2019 and compared it to the same months that during the lockdown that DeWine did. And, and so, yeah, the state saw a significant drop. Cleveland police alone issued uh, 71% fewer traffic tickets than the same time last year. And some suburban police departments here issued about 90% fewer tickets. So which is it? Are we driving so much less that there are fewer drivers to cite or are police not pulling people over so as not to either get or spread the coronavirus? It's both, actually. I, I believe they're attributing at least part of this to the lack of rush hour traffic. I mean, you got to think about it. Bars are closed. So people, you know, they aren't they aren't looking for drunk drivers and things. You know, they aren't looking for reasons to pull people over at night. But, and, but on the other hand, most police departments, most law enforcement agencies now are trying to sort of limit their frontline people's contact with the public. So so really, they're cut. They're scaling that back quite a bit. Our next mission is finding out whether we're having a lot fewer accidents as well. Another benefit of this work from home movement might be that fewer people crash and die. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much money will be lost if the coronavirus stops Cleveland sports from returning? We had an idea last week to try and assess the damage being done to the downtown Cleveland economy by the loss of sports and theater and museums. It's not that hard to figure out, really, because all of those institutions have put out, at intervals, studies on their financial impact. Laura Johnston, we're talking about the possibility of a billion dollars evaporating. What did reporter Pete Krause find? I was really impressed by Pete's story because he read all these arcane economic impact statements and added everything up to make it make sense. So if we keep these big cultural and entertainment venues closed, if the Cavs and the Indians and the Browns don't play, you can't go to the Rock Hall, Playoff Square has no shows, that is more than a billion dollars, which is just mind-boggling. Um, an average... On average, each person going to a Cavs game spends about $21, and that's outside of what they spend in the arena. So one game is potentially worth $378,000 in spending. Wait, there is a caveat. I mean, over the years, people have questioned how accurate these studies are. 
because they use big multipliers and they are trying to justify getting tax dollars. But the theory is if I spend $10 at the arena, it's used to pay people who then spend it on other things with other people who then spend it again. The theory is sound. It's the numbers that always seem squishy. On the other hand, the rock call knows exactly how many people come in from out of town, stay at hotel rooms, and what they generally spend at restaurants. That's real. And right now it's gone. Downtown is a ghost town, right? It is. Uh, We actually had a photo gallery that showed just how empty it looks like. But I agree the numbers are questionable. The big organizations in town, though, the the Greater Cleveland Partnership, Destination Cleveland, the Sports Commission, they, they are very emphatic how much this means to our economy. They want people to realize that this fun stuff is not just entertainment. It's a huge driver of what makes downtown work. So they're really pushing this. You know, it's really a safe bet that it's not coming back, right? You know, even if you reopen this stuff, who's going to go? I mean, it's pretty safe to say that we are losing a large portion of that billion dollars no Mm -hmm. matter what happens next. I don't disagree with you. I hope it comes back in some format, but I cannot see the massive crowds. Every time we, you know, we've talked, you're going to have to lower capacity for these places. So just by that definition, you're cutting it. But look, if you, if you get this and the immunity only lasts a couple of years, which is the general evolving thought, that means every, every time you go to something like this, you could re-expose yourself and get sick again. And unless there is a real vaccine that works, you know, would you go? I think the answer for most people would be no. But then there are some people, and I'm not saying that I'm one of them, but who are thinking I might have had it already. And if I I know I've had it and I didn't feel sick, sure, I don't want to spread it to other people, but I don't feel the physical fear for myself. You know, I think there's that that big question we keep going back to testing is who's had it and didn't know. Yeah, that's true. But even if you've had it and didn't know, you can get it again. And eventually you may have something that triggers it to make you sick. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. The future of this country is going to be so different just, you know, with the work at home movement, with the, the reduction of big crowds. It's what surprises me is we don't seem to have a conversation going on to plan for that. You would think that the city that gets this right, that starts to plan for this and starts thinking about how do you adjust, would have the best chance at prosperity. But do you get any feeling that anyone in Cleveland or or Cuyahoga County or Northeast Ohio is having conversations on these topics? Or you think they're all just fretting? Chris? I generally don't think that they're... Are you there? Sorry. I I don't know what happened there. The... (laughs) I, I think that there is this community isn't that forward thinking anyway. And I think we're right now, I still think we're in the process of trying to sort of get control of this. And and I don't know, I at least I have not seen or read or heard any any conversation just about how like what great structural change might occur as a result of all of this in this city. I mean, you're starting so, but, to but, see but it. But basically like, what I'm talking about, though, is you get mm-hmm. a bunch of the minds together. And you play what if, what if 10 or 20% of the downtown employers decide to have people work from home or reduce their footprints downtown by 20%? What if the sports audiences are a, a fraction of their previous size? What if old people, older people, me, 
don't go to Playhouse Square anymore because they don't want you know you you would think that you would you would have that ex- what what if that happens how do you deal with it how do you try and replace it but like you said i you know we're not forward thinking we're still in reactive mode which what city will be proactive here where I, where will you see this kind of thought i i think you'll see it where people where companies and and the government have already sort of started laying the infrastructural foundation for remote working and, you know, making sure everybody has broadband access and all that stuff. You know, there, you know, there are communities in places like California and you're going to see it in like places like Seattle that dealt with this probably earlier, that they're going to have this weird advantage in the marketplace of, of being able to reopen and tell companies like, Hey, our cities are safer than the other city. You know, I mean, this is actually going to become probably something that businesses and and governments use as a measure of whether or not you want to locate your business in a place and whether you want to take your kids to live in this community. You know what I mean? I mean, that's it's, 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 we're getting way down deep into two things that I just, I don't think we even have a handle on right now. But that's what municipal and civic leaders are supposed to do. And you're just not seeing it. I, I, you know, I was, I, you know, Joe Roman and uh, Dave Gilbert talked to Pete Krause about that story, but, but you, it still feels like it's reactive. Like, wow, we're going to lose a lot of money. We're, and not what is the future of America in a post coronavirus age? Anyway, we'll, we'll be talking about this for quite some time. <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. All right, good discussion to start the week. Thanks, Chris, Jane, and Laura, and thank you for listening. This week in the CLE will return Tuesday.